be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 36, and it is 43 verses. I will read the whole thing, so if you do physically need to sit down, I want you to feel free to do so, but if you are able, please remain standing as we read God's Word. Now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholababah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nebajoth. Now Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basemath bore Reuel, and Aholibamah bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle, and all his animals, and all his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. These were the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, and Reuel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. And the sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Now Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Reuel, Nathah, Zerah, Shammah, Mizah. These were the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Aholabamah, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, and she bore Esau, Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These were the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn son of Esau, were Chief Teman, Chief Omar, Chief Zeppa, Chief Kenaz, Chief Korah, Chief Gatam, and Chief Amalek. These were the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. They were the sons of Ada. These were the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, Chief Nahath, Chief Zerah, Chief Shammah, Chief Mizah. These were the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These were the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Aholabamah, Esau's wife, Chief Jeush, Chief Jalem, and Chief Korah. These were the chiefs who descended from Aholabamah, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anna. These were the sons of Esau, who is Edom, and these were their chiefs. These were the sons of Seir, the Horite, who inhabited the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir, in the land of Edom. And the sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam. Lotan's sister was Timnah. These were the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These were the sons of Zibion, both Aja and Anna. This was the Anna who fought, found the water in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of his father Zibion. These were the children of Anna, Dishon and Aholabamah, the daughter of Anna. These were the sons of Dishon, Himdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Cheran. These were the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Achan. These were the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aaron. 
These were the chiefs of the Horites, Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zibian, Chief Anna, Chief Dishon, Chief Ezer, and Chief Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites according to their chiefs in the land of Seir. Now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Dinhaba. And when Bela died, Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. When Jobab died, Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. And when Husham died, Hadad, the son of Bedad, who attacked Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his place. And the name of his city was Avath. When Hadad died, Samla and Masarka reigned in his place. And when Samla died, Saul of Rehoboath by the river reigned in his place. And when Saul died, Baal Hannah, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. And when Baal Hannah, the son of Akbor, died, Hadar reigned in his place. And the name of his city was Peu. His wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mezahab. And these were the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their families and their places, by their names. Chief Timnah, Chief Alva, Chief Jatheth, Chief Ahilobama, Chief Ella, Chief Pinan, Chief Kenaz, Chief Timon, Chief Mibzar, Chief Magdiel, and Chief Iram. These were the chiefs of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Esau was the father of the Edomites. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, to be honest, that felt a little bit like reading the Edomite phone book. A lot of difficult and unfamiliar names, both of people and places, and a complicated family tree. And Esau, no less, the brother of Jacob, the brother that God hated. So why read it? Well, first, it's part of God's Word, and God doesn't do anything on accident. And He certainly didn't inspire the Scriptures accidentally or frivolously. You know, we talk often about the sufficiency of the Scriptures, and we say that the Scriptures contain all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life. And that's a quote from our confession in chapter 1, paragraph 6. And we often say that if God didn't include something in the Scriptures, then we don't need to know it. Brian said that this morning in CLA. At least we don't need to know it for salvation, for faith, or for life as believers in the church. But let's just admit there are some things that we wish he would have included, but he didn't. And there are passages like this one that we wonder why he included Well, as we ask ourselves, why? Why would he include a long chapter full of names and the genealogy of Esau, a man that he hated? Well, we can consider that there might be multiple reasons for its inclusion. Uh, There may be textual and literary reasons why this genealogy of Esau's descendants is included at this particular point in the history of Israel. It comes right at the close of this portion of the book of Genesis, which has been focused on Jacob. Chapter 37, the focus will shift to Jacob's son, Joseph. 
Jacob will continue to live throughout the remainder of the book, but Joseph will become the main figure. So this is sort of a literary ending to the story of Jacob's generation, which includes his twin brother Esau. So for literary reasons, it sort of makes sense. For historical reasons, it makes sense. It's the record of the line of Esau from the time of Jacob to the time of Moses, and these are relatives of the Israelites. But this is the scripture. It's God's word to us. So in addition to literary and historical reasons, I believe there are theological reasons for the inclusion of Esau's genealogy. And there are four elements that I want to look at this morning that I believe work together to form a theme that we can see here in this scripture. And that theme is this. As God's people, we live amidst the nations of the earth while anticipating the coming of a king who will bring peace and security to his people. Now, that waiting isn't always easy, but we are called to wait on the Lord. So let's explore that theme in Genesis 36 this morning and the four elements that I would draw our attention to that I believe contribute to this theme. But before we do, let's just quickly review the context. Remember that Jacob has returned to the promised land. He is reconciled with his brother Esau. God protected Jacob and his sons after the slaughter of Shechem as they traveled to Bethel to worship God there. And at Bethel, God reaffirmed his covenant promises to Jacob, promises of a multitude of descendants, promises of an inheritance in the land, promise of kings who would come from Jacob's line, which would include the happy rule of God's Messiah. But then Rachel dies, giving birth to Jacob's 12th son, Benjamin. And then Isaac, his father, dies, and Jacob and his brother Esau bury Isaac. And now we're ready to begin exploring the themes of chapter 36. And the first element that I want to explore in this narrative is found as Jacob and Esau part ways in the beginning part of the chapter. Jacob stays in Canaan, but Esau moves and settles in the mountains of Seir. And what is significant about this is that their parting is presented to us here in much the same way as the parting of Abraham and Lot back in chapter 13. And so as we consider uh, this account of Jacob and Esau parting ways, read, let's read verses 6 and 7. Then Esau took his wives his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle and all his animals and all his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. Now compare the language there to Genesis 13 verse 6. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. The language is very similar and, I think, meant to call to mind the parting of Abraham and Lot. In the case of Abraham and Lot, we know that Abraham had been called by God to come to the promised land and that Lot had come with him, but the promises were made to Abraham, not 
to Lot. And so they parted ways. In this case, uh, we have Jacob and Esau, two brothers. And we know that God has affirmed the covenant promises with Jacob and not with Esau. And so they part ways. What's interesting here is that they have to part ways because they are both so wealthy and prosperous. Now, this is interesting because Jacob had received the blessing and the birthright, but Esau appears to have been blessed with great physical wealth. He is no pauper. Jacob had acquired great wealth in Syria, but Esau had remained in the land of Canaan and had apparently become quite wealthy. He has many sons and daughters, well on his way to a multitude of descendants, along with livestock and goods, the scriptures say. He, he is a wealthy man. And like Lot before him, Esau leaves and travels east, southeast to be specific. He settles uh, in the mountains of Seir, which are situated north of Midian, but south of Moab, and, and on the east side of the Sinai Peninsula, just south of the Dead Sea. So this is out of the land of Canaan properly, but it, it's right next door. It, it's neighboring land, which calls to mind the parting of Isaac and Ishmael as well. If you'll remember, Ishmael had traveled south but had remained right near Beersheba where Isaac had dwelt for some time. So the brothers have parted ways, but they're, they're next-door neighbors, so to speak. They're close enough to remain in contact. But the important point is that both Jacob and Esau have experienced great blessings from the Lord. And in verse 7, it is carefully noted for us that they were strangers in the land of Canaan. They did not possess the land. The New Testament book of Hebrews picks up on this language and tells us that Abraham, by faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So they're strangers in the land. It's not their possession. But it's not just that they didn't possess the land of Canaan. Hebrews goes on in chapter 11, verse 13 to say, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth not just in the land of Canaan, but on the earth itself. They lived their lives as strangers and pilgrims. Now, this language of being strangers is applied to the church throughout the New Testament. First, it says that that we who are Gentiles by birth were once strangers to the covenants. In Ephesians 2, verse 12, at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So before we were reconciled to God by faith in Christ, we were strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, this idea of strangers is that we were outsiders. We had no possession of the covenant promises. They didn't belong to us, just as Jacob had no possession in the land of Canaan. But in Ephesians 2.13, it says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Things change once you trust in Christ. By his blood, shed as an atoning sacrifice, we are brought near to God. And then in verse 19, it says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So when you are born again, washed in the blood of Christ, you become a natural-born citizen of the kingdom of heaven, an heir to the promises of the covenant. We're no longer strangers. We're now citizens of God's kingdom. But the flip side of this is that by becoming citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we have now become strangers on the earth. And so the apostle Peter begins his first letter in this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Our status as citizens of the kingdom of heaven renders us strangers on the earth, living as sojourners and pilgrims, just as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had lived in the land of Canaan. So this is the first uh, element that is important to our theme this morning. The second element is that we've seen in the past, any time a phrase is repeated multiple times, it's important. And there is a phrase here that is repeated multiple times uh, throughout this chapter. Look at verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Verse 8, so Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Verse 19, these were the sons of Esau, who is Edom. And the very last sentence of the chapter, Esau was the father of the Edomites. Now, as we've seen before, when something is repeated, it's important. So we have to ask ourselves, why is this repeated so often in this genealogy, insisting upon our identification of Esau as Edom? Well, let's consider the first generation of Israel who would have read this account as Moses recorded it. They had experienced the exodus and the wilderness wandering, and now they are preparing to enter the land of Canaan to claim it as their covenant inheritance. But as they approach, they come to the land of Edom, and they ask to pass through the land, quite politely, I might add. But the Edomites refuse them. They come out with arms to stop Israel from crossing their territory. Now, these are their kin descended from Esau, Jacob's brother. They won't allow them to travel through the land, even when Israel promises to stay on the road and not to even drink water from the wells. So I imagine they're feeling the sting of this. Their own flesh and blood are hostile to them. And here's the thing. Jacob was supposed to rule over Esau. Genesis 27, 29, as Isaac blessed his sons, he said this, let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. 
That was part of the blessing Jacob received. Esau was to serve Jacob, but now Edom won't let them pass. And then we're told in Numbers 21, verse 4, then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. This is disheartening. Jacob's descendants were supposed to rule over Esau's descendants, but they don't. They can't even get safe passage across their territory. A few chapters later, though, in Numbers, Balaam will speak a blessing over the people of Israel, saying, Edom shall be a possession. Seir also, his enemies, shall be a possession, while Israel does valiantly. But this won't happen immediately. It won't happen, in fact, until David reigns as king. At that time, he expands the borders of the kingdom, brings Moab and Edom both into submission to Israel. But then, after Solomon, David's son, dies, Edom will rebel against Israel, just as Isaac had said they would when he blessed Esau. You shall serve your brother, and it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. Throughout the rest of the scriptures in the Old Testament, Edom will come to represent the nations as a whole. Israel's triumph in the future over Edom represents their triumph over the heathen nations. Notice the connection between Esau bowing down to Jacob and the nations bowing down. Let peoples serve you and the nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Isaiah 21, Jeremiah 49, Ezekiel 35, the entire book of Obadiah are all prophecies against Edom. And why? Well, because God had spoken. But more than that, Edom not only opposed Israel's return to the land, but they later rejoiced in the Babylonian captivity, lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem while in Babylon. The psalmist writes in Psalm 137, Remember Edom's children, Lord, who in Jerusalem's day, even unto its foundation, raise, raise it quite, did say. Edom encouraged Israel's enemies. They encouraged the Babylonians, they were cheering them on as they destroyed Jerusalem. Edom sided with the heathen against their own kin. And we've already read this morning from prophet Obadiah, where he says that Edom's future conquest represents the coming of the kingdom of God. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Speaking of this future kingdom, the prophet Amos equates Edom to the nations, saying, On that day, the day of the Lord, the coming day of judgment, on that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it, as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does this thing. Amos 9, 11, and 12. Now, when we get 
to the New Testament, the gospel begins to go forward with power and it spreads outside the bounds of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and Gentiles begin to come to Christ in faith. So the church has to answer the question, is this, is this supposed to happen? How, how do we deal with this? And so they call a council. Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council. And Paul and Barnabas come and they speak. And Peter speaks and he tells about his experience with Cornelius and Gentiles coming to faith. And then James speaks. And here's what he says. Simon, this Peter, has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles and took out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and we will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does these things. He's quoting that passage in Amos. And as he quotes it, he interprets Edom to represent the rest of mankind. So Esau is Edom, Israel's closest relative, but they prove to be hostile to them. They oppose their journey to the land of their inheritance, and they represent the whole of mankind. And in this way, I think we can see a representation of our own situation as strangers and pilgrims on earth. The rest of mankind who are our kin according to the flesh stand opposed to the people of God. They prove themselves to be hostile to our pilgrimage through this world to our inheritance in the kingdom. We see the headlines every day. There's some new attempt to make Christians look bad, to paint us all in a bad light. We don't join the culture in its celebration of sin, and so we're called bigots or haters or worse. Christianity wants the very foundation of the morals and ethics of our society is no longer welcome in the public sphere. It has been expunged from our education system, from the universities, from the courts, it's no longer welcome in, in the arena of ideas. We see opposition all around us. And like the children of Israel in Moses' day, it would be easy for us to become discouraged. But there is encouragement to be had here. Just as Israel had the promise that one day they would rule over the Edomites, we have the promise that God will save his elect from among Edom, from among the nations. So when we are faced with opposition in the world, opposition to the message of the gospel, instead of discouragement, we should find courage to continue to proclaim salvation in Jesus Christ alone, knowing that the Lord who does all these things has declared that there are Gentiles who will be called by his name. We're among those Gentiles called by his name. 
And there are more yet to be called who will come out from among the nations, have their citizenship changed, transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, and join us as citizens of the heavenly kingdom. There's reason for hope. But there's more. The third element in the theme of this chapter is found in verse 31. Now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. And then it goes on to list eight kings who ruled in Edom. And as Christopher Wright says in his book, The Mission of God, clearly the blessing that he, that is Esau, lost and Jacob obtained included more than nationhood alone. He says this because clearly Esau had obtained nationhood. So if the blessing had simply been about nationhood, there's no difference between Esau and Jacob. The blessing was about more than nationhood. Esau's descendants have multiplied and brought forth kings, kings that have ruled and been succeeded on the throne for eight generations. And this has happened before a single king has ruled in Israel. But it was Jacob, not Esau, who received the promise. I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. But as yet, there is no king to rule in Israel. And eight from the line of Esau. This must have been hard for the descendants of Jacob to hear. They had spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt, ruled over by foreign king. The house of Esau, meanwhile, had grown into a nation and ruled itself with a succession of kings. God had promised Israel kings. He had promised them dominion over Edom. He had promised them a land of their own. But they spent generations enslaved in a foreign land while Edom ruled itself independently. There's another cause for discouragement, even despair. And we can fall prey to this one as well. We look at what is happening in the world around us. Wicked rulers in power at all levels of government, both in this nation and around the world. We see them getting their way, advancing their ungodly agendas, enjoying prosperity and success. We have wicked people running for office, and the worst of them claim victory and take power. We rightly celebrate when a wicked law is overturned, such as Roe versus Wade, but then our own state here in Michigan turns around and codifies the murder of the unborn into our state constitution. It appears that the wicked prosper. They have kings. They pass laws. And this month, they celebrate their rebellion against God, even going so far as to call it Pride Month. It seems the kings of the earth have established a new state religion, and it is defined by the tenets and orthodoxies of neo-paganism known as the LGBTQ. And if you don't get on board with it, you're a heretic. Even Chick-fil-A has hired a VP of diversity, equity, and inclusion the first step in compromise with the new state religion. And this can be discouraging to Christians. And I'm not just talking about the chicken. I'm talking about the entire situation as we look at the world around us. 
So how are we to respond to this? The nations have kings, they have rulers, they're enacting laws. Well, the one thing that we don't want to do is to give in to anxiety. Scripture explicitly instructs us not to. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Philippians 4, verse 6. Our response to the apparent prosperity of the wicked and the triumph of evil rulers should be to turn to God in prayer, asking him to work out all these things according to his perfect and infallible will. And the scripture comforts us with the promise that when we take our anxieties to God in prayer, that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So we are to pray. The second thing we are to do is to remember that we are strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. Christ is our king. And our king has told us, do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's from Luke 12. If we treasure the things of this earth, then we will be given to worry and anxiety. For our heart will be here where our treasure is, and it is in danger. But if we set our heart on things above, not the things of this earth, then we'll sleep easy at night, knowing that what we truly value is secure in heaven, in the hands of the king. And just as the Israelites were reminded of the promise of a king that was made to Jacob, we need to remind ourselves of the promise that God has made to us in scriptures concerning our king. Jeremiah 10.10, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Notice what is said of the kings of Edom here in Genesis 36. Verse 32, Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom and the name of his city was Denhaba. And when Bela died, Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. When Jobab died, Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. And when Husham died, Hadad, the son of Bedad, who attacked Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his place. And the name of his city was Avath. When Hadad died, Samla of Masraka reigned in his place. And when Samla died, Saul of Rehoboth by the river reigned in his place. And when Saul died, Baal-Hanan, the son of Achbor, reigned in his place. And when Baal-Hanan, the son of Achbor, died, Hadar reigned in his place. Do you see the common thread here? When he died, the next king reigned in his place. But our king is an everlasting king. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Luke 1, 33. He has died, and yet he lives to reign forever and ever. He is the everlasting king of glory, according to Psalm 24. And the majesty of his reign far exceeds that of any earthly king. 
His kingdom is not limited to the mountains of Sierra or even to the Jordan River Valley. He is the king of heaven where angels worship him continually. He is the king of all the earth, according to Psalm 47, 7, and he rules the nations at his pleasure. And though the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, as it says in Psalm 2, and though they attempt to cast off his rule and his authority, it says that he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord holds them in derision. His power so far exceeds theirs that he looks at their vain plots and he laughs with scorn. And then it says he warns them in his wrath. They cannot oppose his will, though they try with all their might. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And though he may allow their sinful defiance to continue for a time, in the end we know that the Lamb will overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Revelation seventeen fourteen. And though their evil may spread and, and proceed and their wickedness may appear to prosper now, in the end they will stand accountable before the judge of all the earth. Revelation nineteen fifteen and 16, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. They will bow the knee to the lamb that was slain and yet lives forevermore. As Matthew Henry has observed, the triumphing of the wicked may be quick, but it is short, soon ripe and as soon rotten. But the products of the promise though they may be slow, are sure and everlasting. The kings of Edom then and the rulers of the nations now die and face judgment. But Christ lives to rule and to reign forever. As God's people, we live in the midst of the nations while anticipating the coming of a king who will bring peace and security to his people forever of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isaiah 9, verse 7. In his wisdom, God has appointed a day of judgment and the coming of the kingdom. And we may ask with the psalmist, How long, O Lord? But his time is best. Ours is to learn contentment while we await the coming of the king. The fourth element contributing to our theme of waiting for the king this morning is found in verse 43. These were the chiefs of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. In the land of their possession. Both Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom, were strangers in the land of promise. But Esau had left Israel, and Seir had become the possession of Esau and his descendants. And again, at the time of this writing, Israel had no possession in the land of Canaan, only the hope, the promise of an inheritance. 
And so like the multitude of Esau's descendants and the kings that came from his line, this single line speaking of Seir as the possession of the Edomites would have struck the hearts of the children of Israel. While they languished as slaves in Egypt, Edom had established itself as a nation and taken the land of Seir as its possession. We find ourselves in the same situation. We have been promised an eternal inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. But in this moment, we see the children of this world in possession of the kingdoms of the earth, while our inheritance awaits us in the coming kingdom. We would do well to remember the parable that our Lord told of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, being in torment, cried out, begging that Lazarus might give him the teeniest bit of relief by cooling his tongue with a touch of water. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. Those who rule the kingdoms of this world in defiance of King Jesus and those children of this world who oppose themselves to his rule and the good of his people as Edom opposed Israel's pilgrimage, they are, to use a line from a famous preacher, enjoying their best life now. They have this world as their possession and nothing to hope for in the world to come. But we, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we live now as strangers and pilgrims. We have our hope of an inheritance in the coming of the kingdom and the establishment of his kingdom as Christ returns. And it is infinitely better to have the kingdom by promise than to have the world in possession. Why? Because this world is passing away but the kingdom of Christ will endure forever. And the apostle John wrote in his letter, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Our status as citizens of the kingdom of heaven renders us strangers here on earth, living as sojourners and pilgrims, just as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did in the land of Canaan. And just as Israel had the promise of one day ruling over Edom, we have the promise that God will save his elect from among Edom, from among the nations. And just as the Israelites were given a promise of a king to come, so too we have the promise that our king will return to establish his kingdom and to reign forever. As God's people, we live amidst the nations while anticipating the coming of a king who will bring peace and security to his people. We know that he is still calling to himself his elect from among the nations. And so we continue to proclaim the gospel, to trust his timing, to trust his sovereignty and salvation, to trust his promise of an eternal inheritance. I'd like to close with these encouraging words from Psalm 72. And this was written by King David for his son Solomon, who would sit on the throne after him. But 
by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we can clearly see that the promises here concern Christ and his kingdom. For Solomon's kingdom never equaled and did not last what is spoken of in this psalm. So Christian, though this world may seem hostile at times and though wicked rulers may seem to prosper, remember that the king has promised to return and establish a kingdom that will endure forever. So hear these words and be encouraged. O Lord, thy judgments give the king, his son, thy righteousness. With right he shall thy people judge, thy poor with uprightness. The lofty mountains shall bring forth unto the people peace. Likewise, the little hills, the same shall do by righteousness. The people's poor ones he shall judge, the needy's children save. And those shall he in pieces break, who them oppressed have. They shall thee fear, while sun and moon do last through ages all. Like rain on mown grass, he shall drop on showers on earth that fall. The just shall flourish in his days and prosper in his reign. He shall, while doth the moon endure, abundant peace maintain. His large and great dominion shall from sea to sea extend. It from the river shall reach forth unto earth's utmost end. They in the wilderness that dwell bow down before him must, and they that are his enemies shall lick the very dust. The kings of Tarshish and the isles to him shall presents bring, and unto him shall offer gifts, Sheba's and Seba's king. Yea, all the mighty kings on earth before him down shall fall, and all the nations of the world do service to him all. For he the needy shall preserve when he to him doth call, the poor also and him that hath no help of man at all. The poor man and the indigent in mercy he shall spare, He shall preserve alive the souls of those that needy are. Both from deceit and violence, their soul he shall set free. And in his sight, right precious and dear, their blood shall be. Yea, he shall live, and given to him shall be of Sheba's gold. For him still shall they pray, and he shall daily be extolled. Of corn and handful in the earth, on tops of mountains high, with prosperous fruit shall shake like trees of Lebanon that be. The city shall be flourishing, her citizens abound, in number shall like to the grass that grows upon the ground. His name forever shall endure, last like the sun it shall. Men shall be blessed in him, and blessed all nations shall him call. Now blessed be the Lord our God, the God of Israel. For he alone doth wondrous works and glory that excel. And blessed be his glorious name to all eternity. The whole earth let his glory fill. Amen. So let it be. Let's pray.